0: Good morning church family. Grace to you in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's take our Bibles and turn to Nehemiah chapter 2. Nehemiah chapter 2. And we're looking at verses 9 through 20 together. If you're using one of the Bibles that we provide under the seats, you will find this on page 398. And I've entitled today's message Rebuilding Our Missional Focus we're going to begin in a word of prayer and then we'll consider this text. Let's bow together now. Lord, we do thank you so much for the opportunity to start a new week gathered as a church family and to sing hymns declaring your glory and your victory and to bow before you in prayer, and to open your word, and to gain wisdom. Lord, please give us wisdom from today's text. Give us an overwhelming desire to be faithful to the mission to which you have called us. Give us resolve to see the mission through. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So, my friends, God doesn't just call us to be leaders in this world, but he calls us to be missional leaders, which is to say that he calls us to be leaders who understand that there is a mission to complete. Leaders who have confidence about who they are in Christ, about what they stand for, about the task that lies before them, and about how to accomplish that task. We need leaders who have the resolve to see the task through, even if there is opposition along the way. Friends, this is the need of the hour. It's a need for mission-driven spiritual leaders. And if you need a compelling example of this kind of leadership, then look no further than Nehemiah. If you're not familiar with Nehemiah's story, he was an Israelite, who lived in Persia many, many centuries ago. But Nehemiah was also a very godly man, and he had a heart for the people of God. And when he learned that God's people in the Holy Land were in a beleaguered state, it absolutely broke his heart. To know that the city of Jerusalem was still lying in ruins, to know that that God's people were spiritually discouraged, Nehemiah couldn't bear this. And so for months, he mourned, and he fasted, and he prayed, and he brainstormed, and he thought that maybe God could use him to help spark a national rebuilding, national revival. And finally, the Lord put it into his heart to approach King Artaxerxes of Persia. And to ask Artaxerxes for permission to go all the way back to the Holy Land, to go to Jerusalem, and to lead the effort in this, this national revival. Well, God was with Nehemiah, and God gave Nehemiah the courage, and he worked in King Artaxerxes' heart. And as Nehemiah spoke to the king, the king was sympathetic to the requests, and King Artaxerxes granted permission for Nehemiah to go back. And the king even gave Nehemiah a series of letters to go with him, one letter explaining that there had been a change in the policy of Persia. They had been opposed to the rebuilding of the Holy Land, but now Artaxerxes was permitting the rebuilding. And then another letter granting permission for Nehemiah to harvest timber from the king's own forest so they could rebuild the walls and the gates of Jerusalem. As we left our, we left our series last week, this is where we were in the story. Nehemiah had received approval to leave Susa, where he was, to go that 750-mile journey to Jerusalem, and to get that building project underway. Well, now we're picking up in Nehemiah chapter 2, verse 9. And here we find that Nehemiah has, has successfully completed the journey. We have no record of the journey itself. We just find him there in the Holy Land. So let's begin with verse 9. He writes, Then I came to the governors of the province beyond the river. Okay, that is the Euphrates River. So he has, he has made that long journey. He has crossed the Euphrates. He's entered the Holy Land. Now he's meeting with provincial governors around Judea. And he says he gave to those leaders the king's letters. So he, he shows them The letter, granting permission to rebuild. And he shows them the letter, giving permission to harvest the king's timber. We find that Nehemiah didn't just have the king's letters, though. The end of the verse says, Now the king had sent with me officers of the army and horsemen. So not only did he have the king's letters, he also had the king's military with him. He had infantry and cavalry. And this was undoubtedly King Artaxerxes' own idea. And it speaks to the love that Artaxerxes had for his cupbearer Nehemiah, that he would ensure safe passage all the way to Jerusalem by giving him this military entourage. This guaranteed him safe passage. It also would have would have helped to clarify King Artaxerxes' new policy that yes, indeed, they could rebuild Jerusalem. Maybe more importantly than all of that, it meant Nehemiah got to enter the Holy Land in style. And that was cool. But now we come to verse 10. No sooner had Nehemiah landed in the Holy Land than he began to experience some opposition. And verse 10 lists two adversaries by name. First was called Sanballat the Horonite. Now, a document discovered by archaeologists from this period identifies Sanballat as the governor of Samaria. That was the province just to the north of Judea. So this guy is a big deal. The second man is called Tobiah the Ammonite servant. Now, we have documents dated to this time period with his name on it as well. And so we know that Tobiah was the governor of Ammon, which was a province to the northeast of Jerusalem. And so Nehemiah has come a long way, about 750 miles to get from Susa to Jerusalem. It's been an arduous journey, but Nehemiah is a man on a mission, and so he was willing to endure all of the trials of a long journey. And now he has come... And immediately, he has powerful adversaries to contend with. Verse 10 explains why Nehemiah's presence was upsetting these two men. It says it displeased them greatly that someone had come to seek the welfare of the people of Israel. See, that's why Nehemiah had been willing to make this journey. And it's why he was willing to face all of the adversities. He was a man on a mission. He wanted to see Israel rise from the ruins. He wanted to see that nation become a light to the Gentiles once more. He wanted to see people in Israel flourishing again. He wanted God to be glorified through this chosen nation. That's what was driving everything. And he believed that God had put this mission into his heart, and so he went and he faces these opponents. These opponents do not want what Nehemiah wants. They lead provinces around Judea, and they are perfectly happy for Judea to remain in ashes. If their capital city can, can remain without walls, that is great with them. If the people can remain spiritually discouraged, that's all the better because it strengthens the hand of the surrounding peoples. Well, how is Nehemiah going to handle these powerful adversaries? Well, we find out at the beginning of verse 11. He writes, So I went to Jerusalem. And I love that. Because nothing is going to deter this man from his task. Not governors of rival provinces. Nothing is going to stop this man. Certainly not after all of these hundreds of miles of travel. You think he's going to be stopped by two politicians? No way. So he keeps on going. You see, friends, when you are convinced of your divine mandate, nothing is going to shake your resolve. Jerusalem was a long way from Susa. That wasn't going to stop Nehemiah. As he got close, rival provinces began to make threatening postures. That wasn't going to stop Nehemiah. He wasn't going to be deterred by anything. See, friends, leadership, true leadership, requires this kind of resolve. And where does this resolve come from? Well, it comes from that clear sense of mission. When you know who you are in Christ, and you know what God would have you to do, that is all that you need to be able to face any kind of difficulty that you might have to confront. That's what was helping Nehemiah to continue on with his journey. Missional leaders are always driven by a sense of purpose. They set out with purpose, and they continue on with purpose. Now we come to verses 11 through 16. We continue Nehemiah's story. He says, So I went to Jerusalem, and I was there three days. Now what was he doing for that three-day period? The text doesn't say, but I think we can surmise that he was probably resting for a good deal of it It was a long, arduous journey. He needed to rest. You understand that there is nothing ungodly about resting from time to time. In fact, sometimes a nap is the godliest thing that you can do. Mark 6.31, Jesus says to his disciples, Come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. And then Mark adds, For many were coming and going, and they had no leisure even to eat. You see... There is no conflict between being a mission-driven leader and also being a leader who understands your physical limitations. And you're not going to do yourself or anybody else any good if you just push yourself nonstop without a break. You're going to burn yourself out. Then you're not going to finish your task. Nobody will be benefited by your labors And so it's good for us to realize that we are not God and our bodies get tired and sometimes we need to take a pause and recuperate. That's what Nehemiah does. Three days to rest. But then I also think he's doing some other things during these three days. I think he's also meeting with people in Jerusalem. Meeting the priests, the nobles, the officials, the city residents. He's starting to form relationships with key people because he's going to need these people to carry out his work. Then we come to verse 12. He says, And then, okay, subsequent to that three day rest and and meet and greet period, after that he rose in the night. He says, I and a few men with me, and I told no one what God had put into my heart to do for Jerusalem. And there was no animal with me but the one on which I rode. So Nehemiah has come into Jerusalem with these letters from King Artaxerxes. A couple of people have seen these letters, so they know what Nehemiah is doing. Clearly, these governors of rival provinces know what Nehemiah is doing. But as far as the the masses in Israel are concerned... They have not yet been made aware of Nehemiah's plans. They don't know exactly what he's there to do, namely to to bring about a national reformation, to rebuild Jerusalem and help God's people to flourish again. They don't know this, and Nehemiah has chosen to keep them in the dark for a time on purpose. And that's because it would do no good at all for Nehemiah to just rush into Jerusalem and say, hey everybody, I'm here to rebuild your nation. Let's go do it. They would say, who is this guy? (laughs) Say, Nehemiah, we don't know you. You don't know us. You don't know what life is like here. There's no way that we can do what you say. So you see, Nehemiah needed to take some time. He needed to get to know the people first. He needed to build a little bit of rapport with them. And then he also needed to take this this little journey around the city of Jerusalem and see with his own eyes the state of the city. He needed to see how bad the condition of the city was so that afterwards he could go to the people of Jerusalem and he could say, look, I have seen with my own eyes what we are up against. I know I know what this city has gone through. And here is my plan to get us from this point to the point where we need to be. You see, this is how leaders operate. And so he takes a a night journey while everyone else is asleep. It's just him and his donkey and a couple of perhaps guides. And they begin their trip around the city walls. Verse 13 details his journey. He says, I went out by night by the valley gate. Okay, that gate was on the western side of the city. At this point, of course, there was no standing gate. So he's just walking through the rubble of the gate. And then we see that he takes a sharp left turn. He says he goes down to the dragon spring. So he's going south along the western side of Jerusalem. And back in the day, that dragon spring was a really attractive place. The pool of Siloam was there. A beautiful garden was also there. Of course, at this time, it was just a pile of debris. But he's making his way around the perimeter of the city. He says, from the dragon gate, he went next to the dung gate. Now, that's at the southern tip of the city, and as its name suggests, this is where the residents of Jerusalem would dump all of their refuse. Okay, Outside of that that gate, there was a huge valley of Hinnom. That was Jerusalem's landfill. And so he's just making his circuit around the city, going south, reaching the, the bottom tip of the city. Now he's going to start climbing upward in a large horseshoe formation. Verse 13b, I inspected the walls of Jerusalem that were broken down and its gates that had been destroyed by fire. Okay, So as he's making this ring around the city, he's paying close attention to all of the work that's going to have to be done. Verse 14, then I went on to the fountain gate. This is on the eastern edge of the city, so he's, he's heading further north now. In fact, you have an insert in your bulletin this morning It's a rudimentary map of the city of Jerusalem in Nehemiah's day. The thick black line shows you where the city walls would have been, or the remnants of those walls. And then you can see the pink dotted line showing the route that Nehemiah took. He makes it to the fountain gate on the eastern side of the city. And to the king's pool. But then he writes, end of verse 14, But there was no room for the animal that was under me to pass. So apparently at this point in the circuit, he encounters a, a pile of debris that is just so massive and unstable that his donkey cannot traverse it. So at this point, Nehemiah has to dismount, and he's going to continue on foot. Now, interestingly, in 1961, an archaeologist named Kathleen Kenyon unearthed a massive pile of rubble at this exact spot. And she concluded that this was rubble left behind from King Nebuchadnezzar's conquest of Jerusalem back in 586 B.C. This is undoubtedly the exact same pile that Nehemiah encountered as he was making his trip around. Okay, so this city had been in ruins For more than a hundred years at this point, Nebuchadnezzar had destroyed the city wall so that his army could march through and the ruins are still there and Nehemiah and his animal cannot pass together. He's got to get off his animal. He's got to go on foot in a more circuitous route uh, around the rubble. Then verse 15, he says, I went up in the night by the valley and inspected the wall. Okay, so he is... He's on the outside of that debris field and he's hugging the edge of the valley that wraps around the east side of the city, continuing to inspect everything that he can. And then end of verse 15, he says, I turned back and entered by the valley gate and so returned. So at that point, he doubles back, retraces his steps, re enters the city at the point that he had departed Nehemiah has done all of this so that he can have a clear-eyed view of the condition of Jerusalem. You see, friends, this is another important principle of leadership. You have to know your starting point before you can start moving people toward your goal. This requires making a careful assessment of the present state of affairs, and it also requires the ability to be able to look at things with an objective viewpoint. Someone explained this to me years ago, that the difference between a dreamer and a leader is this, that a dreamer can imagine a better future for people, but the leader knows all of the steps that will be required to get from where we are now to that better state. Well, Nehemiah is clearly a leader a leader with a powerful sense of mission. And so he has made this careful inspection of Jerusalem so he can know exactly where things stand because he knows where he wants them to be. Now he is able to determine the steps that it will take to get from here to there. And now that he's done all of this difficult work, he is ready to start rallying the faithful. We see this verse 17 Nehemiah starts with the negative, and then he turns to the positive. Well, let me start in verse 16, in fact. He says, And the the officials did not know where I'd gone or what I was doing, and I'd not yet told the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials, and the rest who were to do the work. Now, verse 17, he's ready. It's time to start getting some buy-in for this project. He begins with the negative, negative. Then I said to them, You see the trouble we are in, how Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burned. So Nehemiah, having made the journey, having pressed through the adversaries, having inspected matters for himself, he now speaks to the masses in Jerusalem, and he is honest with them. A leader must always be honest with their people. And he says to the residents of Jerusalem, I am not going to sugarcoat this. You and I both see it. We're in trouble. Things are not good here right now. He couldn't even circle the entire city because the debris fields were so great. Things were not good. The city was clearly in physical trouble. It was vulnerable to foreign invasions. They had no walls of protection. They were in psychological trouble, feeling weak and defeated. They were spiritually troubled. After all, this nation had been set up as a light to the Gentiles. But what Gentiles could take this nation seriously? Their nations had cities with walls. Israel, God's chosen nation. It was a pile of ashes. This was a spiritual crisis too. And they all felt it. But you also notice something very important here in Nehemiah's words. You notice the pronouns that he uses? He says, You see the trouble that we are in. We are in. Now, Nehemiah was born and raised in Persia. He was then serving in Susa, the king's winter resort. But notice how he identifies himself with God's people in Israel here. He was an Israelite, and he identifies with the Israelites. This is another important quality in leadership. It will not do for a man to say, Look, you guys, you're really in trouble here. But don't worry, I'm here to save you from it. No, there must not be a barrier between the leader and his people. There must be a sense that we are all in this together. And that's what Nehemiah does. He says, we, we are in this mess. We're living in this heap of ash. But together we can get out of it. Together we can be all that God would have us to be again. He goes on, second part of verse 17, and he says, Now come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem. Yes, we're in trouble, but we can fix it. We can rebuild the walls. And look what would happen if they did. He says, we will no longer suffer derision. Because you see, that was the state of God's people at this point. Just an object of ridicule from all of the nations surrounding them. Look at these people. They claim to be God's chosen people. This is the Holy Land. Look at it. It's in ruins. Who can take these people seriously? Nehemiah says, I see that. I see we're in bad shape. But together, together, if we will catch a vision of what God would would have us to be again, And if together we will pick up our shovels and get to work, we can be all that God would have us to be. We can rebuild this city. We don't have to live among the ruins any longer. We can be as a shining city on a hill. We can be a a place where people are drawn to the God of heaven again. It can all happen. We can do it together. You see, the best leaders are inspirational. They help their people see the possibilities and then see how they will get there if they only work together. And then verse 18. Nehemiah explains to the people why this is all not just some pipe dream. But they have a real basis for believing that a national reformation can take place. Verse 18, And I told them of the hand of my God that had been upon me for good, and also of the words that the king, that's King Artaxerxes, had spoken to me. He says, listen, listen, you residents of Jerusalem. We are living among the ruins right now, but it doesn't have to be that way. We can rebuild this place. We can make it all that it ought to be. And here's how I know it. It's because months and months ago, when I heard the news about the sorry state of Jerusalem, I began to pray and to fast and to brainstorm and to beg God to do something new among his people. And then I began to ask God to use me to do it. And then he explained to the people that that God answered my prayers. He said, God gave me the courage to confront the most powerful man in the world, King Artaxerxes of Persia, and to tell Artaxerxes of my desire, knowing that Artaxerxes was the one who had ordered the stop to the construction of Jerusalem. But I went to him and I looked him in the eye and I told him, I told him, that God had put it into my heart to rebuild. And then he explained to them how God had answered that request. He said, and Artaxerxes said yes to me. He said, I could go. And he gave me letters, letters that gave me access to construction materials so we could build, and letters announcing the change in policy so that nobody could stop us. And the king, he gave me a contingent of soldiers to guarantee safe passage. And he says, more than that, God has been with me every step of the way. And he says, I know, I know that God is with us now. We can rebuild the walls. God will do it for us. He will work with us. God wants to make a name for himself in our nation again. And it can be done. This is what Nehemiah is telling the people. He's giving them a vision of what could be. He's explaining to them how the work can get done. And he's explaining that they have reason for confidence in the plan because they have God with them. So friends, we see here that Nehemiah set out with a purpose. He's given his plan an honest assessment and now he has rallied the faithful. Now it's time to get to work. And so we come to verse 19. Unfortunately, we find... Before I get there, I should finish verse 18. What is the response of the residents of Jerusalem? Well, here's my favorite sentence of the book. They said back to him, let us rise up and build. And so they strengthened their hands for the good work. They have fully bought in to what Nehemiah has been saying. Yes, Nehemiah, let's do it. Let's rise up and rebuild. Let's get up off of these ashes and let's build ourselves a city. And then let's build ourselves a nation. Let's revive the people of God. And let's do something great together. And so they begin the work. But now, verse 19, there's more trouble. It says, but when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant and Geshem the Arab heard of it, okay? in other words, they, they heard that we have, have rallied together to do this great thing. As soon as they became aware of that, they jeered at us and despised us and said, what is this thing you are doing? Are you rebelling against the king? Now, we've already met Sanballat, and Tobiah. But who is this new character, this Geshem the Arab? Well, actually, he was the most powerful adversary of them all. You see, years ago, archaeologists unearthed a silver vessel which had been donated to an Arabian goddess, and on that vessel was the name Geshem, King of Kedar. And, and this vessel, combined with other documents that we have uncovered, reveals to us that this man, this Geshem the Arab, he was a ruler of an entire league of Arab tribes, which were to the south of Judea. And so now Nehemiah finds himself surrounded by adversaries. He has got Sanballat, and Tobiah to the north and northeast, and now he has got Geshem the Arab with his entire league of Arab tribes to the south and southeast and southwest of Israel. They are absolutely surrounded by opponents. And we notice they employ a threefold strategy to stop Nehemiah in his tracks. First, they use ridicule. Nehemiah says, they jeered at us. This is a frequent tool used by the enemies of God, is it not? Trying to make God's people appear dumb or foolish, make them feel small and vulnerable, convince them that nobody really takes them seriously, so they shouldn't take themselves too seriously either. The enemies of God are very good at using ridicule. I once read this statement that... The Church of Jesus Christ can endure persecution. We can endure imprisonment and martyrdom and all of that, but can we endure being the butt of other people's jokes? Can we endure the social scorn? That is a real test. And these three powerful men employ ridicule to stop God's people. But they also use contempt. Nehemiah says they despised us. That means they they poured out their angry vitriol on them. God's people also face the vitriol of the masses, don't they? But friends, when this happens, just remember our Lord's words in Matthew chapter 5 when he said, Blessed are you when others revile you. Persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven will be great. And then we see they also use threats. Another common tool used against God's people, the threat of harm. Notice what they say to Nehemiah. They say, What are you doing? Are you rebelling against the king? If we can read between the lines here, they're saying, Nehemiah, it would be a real shame if word got back to Artaxerxes that you were trying to foment a new rebellion here. You wouldn't want the king to hear that, would you? It's the threat of arrest, imprisonment, Torture, maybe death. You're not rebelling against the king, are you? Friends, sometimes God's enemies will make threats. They make threats because they don't know something that God's people do know. And that's found in Second Corinthians chapter 12, verse 10. "For Christ's sake, we delight in weaknesses in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when we are weak, then we are strong. So the enemies of God's people will always use these tactics. From Nehemiah's day to ours, it's always been this way. It will always be this way. They're going to laugh at you and ridicule you. They'll write skips for SNL about you. They will make you feel just as marginalized as you can be. They will also let you know that you are hated and despised and they will issue threats. They will tell you keep up what you are doing and we will arrest you. We will take away your property. We will separate you from your loved ones. We will send you to the stake. That's what they will do. But they don't know that when it comes to God's people, at least, when we are weak, then we are strong. And so we rejoice. We rejoice in mistreatments. Not because we enjoy being mistreated, but because we know how God can use a people who can endure this. We know the gospel spreads when God's people are most mistreated. As one church father said, it is the blood of the martyrs which is the seed of the church. And so Nehemiah replies to his adversaries with these strong words, verse 20. He writes, I replied to them, the God of heaven will make us prosper. And we his servants will arise and build. But you... You have no portion or right or claim in Jerusalem. So we do not fear you guys. We don't fear your threats. We don't fear your kings. We have a divine mandate for this project, and we will succeed. We are working under the authority of the king of heaven, and so our king is way bigger than yours. We're not afraid of that. As far as the ridicule, we'll not be deterred by you. We're going to pick up our tools and build, and you're going to watch this city come back to life. And when we are finished, Nehemiah says, when we are finished and Jerusalem's walls are high and strong and God's people are worshiping in their temple again, when that day comes and God is once again prospering us, all of you people will be locked outside. You will have no part in this. Friends, this is what it looks like to be a mission-driven leader. And friends, though we are not in Israel, and this is not the 5th century B.C., I believe that there is a lot that we can learn from Nehemiah's story, beginning with the fact that we do have a divine mandate of our own. It's called the Great Commission. And it comes directly from Jesus, and he says this to us, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and then teaching them all things that I have commanded you. There is our mandate, friends. We are to go, to open our mouths, to speak, to share the words of gospel life. And as people come to saving faith in Christ, to baptize them and to teach them everything that Christ taught. Our task is to build the church of Jesus Christ under His headship and by His grace. God has told us how to carry out this task. He he tells us in His Word how the work is to be fulfilled. And friends, God has told us what to expect along the way. There will be ridicule. There will be vitriol. There will be threats. For some, there will be true persecution. And that's why the church in America is not faring so well today. It's why we're not bold in our speech. It's why... In America, we are modifying long held doctrines of the faith. It's why we are watering down the demands of discipleship because we are scared. We are scared. Our sense of mission is being clouded by fear. We're being overcome with the desire to please the non believer rather than to win the non believer to Christ. Friends, things are not faring well today, and so there is a need in this hour for us to rebuild our own resolve, to become missional leaders, to become a people that does not cower in the face of ridicule and contempt and in threats. There's a need for us to be bold and to trust that if God has given us a work to do, then God will grant us success. We may not know the future of our singular local church, but we know that he has promised the success of his global church. We have a part in building that here. Friends, let us learn to be missional leaders. Let us be the kinds of leaders that God needs us to be, and may God grant us success here in Marshall and around the world, just as he gave success to Nehemiah and those who followed him. Let's close in a word of prayer now. Father, we thank you for this passage. We pray that you would help us to be bold, to be courageous, to be willing to speak, to to declare your truth in the public square. And Lord, we pray that you would give us the confidence that we are your people, fulfilling your work, and that you will grant us success. Help us, Lord, to go forth in that confidence, and we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.